you're going to decide to take a shot, an accurate shot at something that you're not sure is within your capabilities, is the risk greater to allow the person to enter the school with a rifle versus you trying to take a accurate shot? Everybody failed at the fundamental principles of an active shooter. One eighteen, this is my family. I can't copy. I want family. I love them. We got crews coming. Welcome back to Surviving the Street, where policing meets personal growth, tough conversations, and partially filtered stories of real events. Today on the podcast, I will be going over the alert after action report regarding the Robb Elementary School attack in Uvalde. Before I get started, if you're new here, make sure you're following the social media channels. You can find it at Kinetic Concepts underscore group on YouTube or Surviving the Street and at Surviving the Street on Instagram. Keep in mind that I'm going over the factual report that was produced by alert, and I'll also be giving some of my opinion along the way. If you're watching this either on Spotify or YouTube, I will be putting some graphics up on the screen for you to see. ALERT stands for Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training, and they are largely responsible for the active shooter protocols and training in Texas. There's a reason why in the intro of this podcast I say tough conversations because these conversations are hard to have and they are filled with a lot of emotion. This after action is very detailed and I'm not going to go over every little bit of information that was provided, but I am going to go over parts of the timeline the physical site assessment, tactical assessment, mitigating factors that could have been utilized before the suspect enters the building, initial response within the building, changing circumstances prior to the assault, and factors increasing capability. I do want to pay particular attention to what these officers knew and when they knew it, and that includes not only the initial responding officers, but tactical officers that arrived during the incident. Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas was attacked on May 24, 2022. The attack resulted in 29 fatalities, 19 students and two teachers. The information presented in this report is based on an incident briefing held for select alert staff on June 1st, 2022. The briefing, which was held for approximately one hour, was led by an investigating officer with knowledge of the event and the investigative details. I imagine since that meeting was only an hour, which doesn't seem nearly enough time, that the information was already gathered and simply handed over or presented to them and there was probably very little information gathering back and forth or questions being asked or answered. This was or is the most current information as of June 30th, 2022, and I haven't found a more current report from Alert. For the sake of making this easier to understand, I'm going to eliminate the seconds from the hours and minutes. At 1127, a female teacher, female one, exits the exterior in the west wall, propping the door open with a rock to prevent it from closing behind her. At 11.28, the suspect becomes involved in a motor vehicle crash in a dry canal near the elementary school. Two people from a nearby business approach the crash scene at 11.29. The suspect engaged them both with a rifle. The two were able to flee back to the business unharmed and called 911. At 11.29, female 1 returns to the west entry, deliberately kicking the rock from the door jam. Female 1 pulls the door shut and continues to look out of the exterior door as she is frantically speaking on her cell phone. Female 1 attempts to enter the door on the south side of the west hallway only to find it locked. At 11.30, the suspect, wearing dark clothing and carrying a bag, left the crash scene and climbed a chain-link fence onto the elementary school property. The suspect walked deliberately across the open grounds between the fence and the teacher's parking lot. Female 1 knocked on the door and it was eventually answered by another female, female 2. Female 1 appears to advise female 2 of the emergency, whereupon female 2 re-enters her room and secures the door. Female 1 moves into a room closest to the exit on the north side of the hallway. 
female one re-enters the hallway numerous times, yelling down the hallway for students to get to their classrooms. The suspect moved towards the school's building on the westmost side of the campus. At 11.31, the suspect is captured on video between cars shooting and a Uvalde patrol unit is captured arriving at the crash site. At 11.31, a Uvalde school police officer drives through the west gate near the crash site and across the field to the south side of the building at a high rate of speed. At 11.32, the suspect reached the west teacher's parking lot adjacent to the affected building and fired through the windows into the westmost rooms prior to entering the building. Prior to the suspect's entry into the building at 11.33, according to statements, a Uvalde police officer on the scene of the crash site observed a suspect carrying a rifle outside the West Hall entry. The officer, armed with a rifle, asked his supervisor for permission to shoot the suspect. However, the supervisor either did not hear or responded too late. The officer turned to get confirmation from his supervisor, and when he turned back to address the suspect, he had entered the West Hall unabated. And this is the first part where I'm going to deviate reading off of this after action. This comes down to individual capabilities and understanding when to identify serious bodily injury or death and deploy your weapon system. Where I see this commonly happening, even out on the streets, is patrol officers arriving on a disturbance call hearing something inside that's a driving factor where they should be making entry and getting on the radio and asking a supervisor who isn't there if they are authorized to make entry inside. I just don't understand why a supervisor would authorize that not knowing all the facts and circumstances. It doesn't make sense and it's your responsibility to be able to identify that and move to it. At 11.33, the suspect enters the school from the exterior door in the West Hall while holding a rifle. The suspect looked around the hallway and then continued to walk down the west hallway before turning right. The suspect walked past a series of rooms with closed doors and a firewall break before making entry into room 111 and 112. At 11.33, upon reaching the rooms 111 and 112, the suspect fires a series of rounds from the hallway in the direction of classrooms 111 and 112. At 11.33, the suspect made entry into what appears to be classroom 111. Immediately, children's screams could be heard along with numerous gunshots in the classrooms. The rate of fire was initially very rapid, then slowed, lasting only a few seconds. At 11.33, the suspect backed out of what appears to be classroom 111 into the south hallway. The suspect made a slight turn to what appears to be his left and fires a series of rounds from the hallway into classroom 112. The suspect then re-enters what appears to be classroom 111 and continues to fire what is estimated to be over 100 rounds by 1136. So from 1133 to 1136, three minutes, the suspect fires what is estimated to be 100 rounds. During the shooting, the sounds of children screaming and crying could be heard. After the suspect made entry into the West Building, three Uvalde police officers gathered at Geraldine Street in front of the school drop-off pickup area. Then the officers, using a bounding overwatch tactic, moved quickly one at a time to the west door. At 11.36, the last shots from the initial barrage of the suspect were fired. There were seven officers in the west hallway and four officers in the south hallway. At 11.36, the officers from the west and south hallway advanced on rooms 111 and 112. As the officers entered the threshold of rooms 111 and 112, they were fired upon by the suspect who was in room 111. The gunfire at 11.37 drove the officers away from the threshold of room 111 and 112 and back to the west and south hallway prior to either team making contact with either room 111 or 112 doors. 
At 11.38, the suspect concludes firing. According to audio estimates, 11 rounds are fired. Investigators advise that the two officers were injured by building material fragments caused by the suspect's rounds passing through the walls. Officers generally remained in the intersection of the west and south hallway and in the south hallway near the south entrance until the final assault. At 11.38, an officer outside of the hallway advises the suspect is contained. At 11.40, the suspect fires one round according to audio estimates. At 11.41, dispatch asks via the radio if the door was locked and a UPD officer responds, I am not sure, but we have a halogen to break it. At 11.44, three minutes after that, the suspect fires one more round according to audio estimates. At 11.48, four minutes after that, an ISDPD officer enters through the west hallway door and states, she says she is shot, referring to his wife. He is escorted outside of the building. By 11.51, which is approximately 20 minutes after the suspect entered the building, law enforcement from various agencies, including UPD, UCISDPD, Uvalde Sheriff's Office, Fire Marshals, Constable Deputies, Southwest Texas Junior College Police Department, and the United States Border Patrol had arrived at the scene and were moving inside and out to evaluate the situation. At 11.52, the first ballistic shield enters the hallway. At 11.56, a DPS agent states, there's still kids over here, so I'm getting the kids out. At 12.03, a second ballistic shield arrives, and at 12.04, a third shield arrives on scene in the west hallway. At 12.10, officers in the west hallway begin passing out and donning gas masks. At 12.13, dispatchers had received numerous 911 calls from a child explaining that there were several children and one of her teachers deceased and another teacher hurt in room 112. At 12.15, it appears tactical team members of the United States Border Patrol tactical team's BORTAC arrived and assist with fortifying law enforcement position at the intersection with ballistic shields. At 12.20, a fourth ballistic shield arrives in the west hallway. At 12.21, four shots are fired by the suspect within one of the two classrooms. Approximately 20 seconds after that, BORTAC members move to a set of double doors approximately 36 feet from rooms 111 and 112, bringing two ballistic shields. However, no assault on the rooms was conducted. Just for clarification, Bortak arrives at 12.15 and at 12.21, approximately six minutes later, they hear gunshots, which drives them up to within about 36 feet of rooms 111 and 112. However, no assault on the rooms was conducted. At 12.21 and 12.34, a continuous conversation takes place in the south hallway involving UCISD PD chief and a UPD officer discussing tactical options and considerations, including snipers, windows, and how to get into the classroom. They also discussed who has the keys, testing the keys, the probability of the door being locked, and if kids and teachers are dying or dead. At 12.35, Border Patrol agents arrive in the west hallway with the first observed breaching tool. At 12.50, an ad hoc team assaults room 111, neutralizing the suspect. The suspect had concealed himself in a book closet. He then emerged when the team made entry. Footage showed officers frantically carrying the dead and injured to the casualty collection point in the east hallway. Some law enforcement officers rushed casualties directly through the exterior door at the end of the west hallway. The results of this incident was 19 children and 2 adults killed, with an additional 17 reported injuries. Additionally, the suspect was neutralized through the gunfire in the assault. Just for clarification on the timeline, the suspect entered the building at about 11.33 a.m. Officers entered shortly after that, drove to the sound of gunfire, 
confronted the suspect, took incoming rounds, and then pushed back to the end of the hallway and didn't approach again. Bortak arrived at 12.15, approximately 32 minutes after the event started. Seven minutes after Bortak was on scene, they heard gunshots coming from the classroom. They pushed up to about 36 feet within rooms 111 and 112 and did not assault the room. I want to spend a few minutes talking about this because I believe that there was some misinformation about what was seen and what was heard or why or why certain things didn't happen. And what I had heard at the time was that the officers made entry, went to the door, met resistance, fell back, and then essentially a tactical team showed up, identified the problem, and eliminated the threat. And that doesn't really seem to be true based on this information and based off the video information, both from surveillance and body cameras. If we can't take responsibility and clearly identify the problem, then it makes it that much harder to make the adjustment going forward. I don't remember seeing, and I couldn't find anything, of Bortak making any statements about what they knew, when they knew it, and why they did or didn't assault the room as soon as they arrived. But some of my first videos on my YouTube channel were about this incident, and what struck me as odd was when Mike Glover went around basically saying that Bortak didn't know that there was an active attack, didn't know that there was children being killed or dying. And I believe what he said was, they didn't know and I believe him because he knows who they are. And so the problem with that is that he's speaking on their behalf. And the video and audio evidence, the surveillance and the body camera doesn't support that they didn't know. And what I point out in that video is all the circumstances surrounding this incident and all the time that has passed before they arrived, that we, it would be extremely improbable for them not to know. You're arriving on a scene 30 minutes after it started. There has to be a bunch of audio dispatch going through Bortax radios telling them the severity of the situation. And I just find it hard to believe, being as severe as this situation was, that Nothing came over their radio that said there was children or people hurt or killed. They're arriving at an elementary school at noon. The parking lot's full of cars. And the conversation between officers and some of the Bortak individuals inside the hallway, you can hear him telling him that there's children inside. And so that's where it becomes problematic. If they did or didn't do something based on legitimate information or what they perceived the information to be, that's one thing, and that's the real information. That's what we all kind of want to know. And like I said, I didn't hear Bortak going out and saying anything about what did or didn't happen or why they did or didn't do something, but they basically had a spokesperson on their behalf putting out information that is seemingly not true. I don't have anything against Mike Glover. I don't know the guy, but when he was making those statements, I found those in, in direct conflict with what the information actually says. Now I'm gonna get into the physical site assessment. The investigator escorted alert staff to the crime scene for the site walkthrough. As expected, there was a large quantity of dry blood on the floors in the three hallways. There were noticeable penetrating ballistic defects throughout various walls in the south hallway. Now I'm gonna start going over a little bit of the tactical assessment and circumstances before the suspect entered the building. Alert identified three key issues that occurred prior to the suspect gaining entry into the building. First, a teacher propped open the exterior door at 1127. Alert staff noted rocks, some of which were painted, placed at most external doors of the building. Based on this observation, it appears the propping doors open is a common practice at this school. While the teacher did kick the rock and close the door prior to the suspect making entry, the propping open of the door did not affect what happened in this situation. 
circumventing access control procedures can create a situation that results in danger to students. After the teacher closed the door, she did not check to see if the door was locked. Perhaps this was because the door is usually locked. However, in this instance, on this day, the door was not locked. And because it was not locked, the attacker was able to immediately access the building. This again highlights the importance of not circumventing access control procedures. Even if the teacher had checked to see if the door was locked, it appears she did not have the proper key or tool to engage the locking mechanism on the door. Finally, we note that the door was a steel frame with a large glass inlay. This glass was not ballistic glass, nor was there film or glass to maintain the integrity of the door if the suspect shot at the glass. This suggests that the suspect would have had the ability to gain access to the building even if the door was locked. Second, one of the first responding officers drove through the parking lot on the west side of the building at a high rate of speed. The suspect was in the parking lot at this time, but the officer did not see him. If the officer had driven more slowly or had parked his car at the edge of the school property and approached on foot, he might have been able to see the suspect and engage him before the suspect entered the building. One note I'll make on this, just as a law enforcement officer in general when you're arriving on scenes, something that you really don't do in the beginning it's hard for you too because you're trying to be aware of so many things and trying to keep track of so many things when you're a newer officer. But as time goes on, certain things kind of happen and you realize that you need to start be paying more attention sooner. And obviously, one of the tactical advantages of kind of slowing down is that you're trying to keep everything in front of you and you don't want to miss something. So even if we're talking about arriving on a scene of a robbery, right? So the chances of you arriving on scene and finding the person in the store, it, it can happen. But there's also a probability that they are running out of the store or running through the parking lot or entering a vehicle that's fleeing out of the parking lot. And that's something that you could identify and see that catches your attention that actually puts you on the person instead of flying straight to the front door. Third, a Uvalde PD officer reported that he was at the crash site and observed the suspect carrying a rifle prior to the suspect entering the West Hall exterior door. The UPD officer was armed with a rifle and sighted in to shoot the attacker. However, he asked permission from his supervisor to shoot. The UPD officer did not hear a response and turned to get confirmation from his supervisor. When he turned back to address the suspect, the suspect had already entered the West Hall exterior door at 11.33. The officer was justified in using deadly force to stop the attacker. In this instance, the UPD officer would have heard gunshots and or reports of gunshots observed and an individual approaching the school building armed with a rifle. A reasonable officer would conclude in this case, based upon the totality of the circumstances, that the use of deadly force was warranted. Furthermore, UPD officer was approximately 148 yards from the West Hall exterior door. 148 yards is well within the effective range of an AR-15 platform. The officer did comment that he was concerned that if he missed his shot, the rounds could have penetrated the school and injured students. You commonly hear people chiming in and talking about officers taking shots at individuals and not having the ideal backdrop. Not having the ideal backdrop doesn't mean that you don't take accurate shots at something. It means that you are aware of what's between you and your target and beyond. We also note that the state of Texas standards for patrol rifle qualification do not require officers to fire their rifles from more than 100 yards away from the target. It is therefore possible that the officer had never fired his rifle at a target that was that far away. Ultimately, the decision to use deadly force always lies with the officer who will use the force. If the officer was not confident that he could both hit his target and of his backdrop when he missed, 
he should not have fired. I imagine as the suspect is moving through the parking lot, his backdrop as he's approaching the school is concrete or whatever the school is made out of. And something that you need to be aware of, if you're going to decide to take a shot, an accurate shot at something that you're not sure is within your capabilities, which you might have to do in a situation like this, is the risk greater to allow the person to enter the school with a rifle versus you trying to take a accurate shot? So what you should do if you decide to take a accurate shot is pay attention to your site and what your site's doing and where your site is when you fire that round. If he is walking past the building, there's a good chance that your round's going to impact somewhere on that concrete. If you knew where you were holding as he was walking and you paid attention to where your impact was, you should be able to make an adjustment from there and put more accurate rounds on him if you feel like you need to do that. That's something that we would do in the military all the time, and they call that walking it on. You shouldn't have to do that, but in an extreme situation where you're attempting to take an accurate shot that you haven't taken before, at a minimum, if you miss, pay attention to where your impact is and try to make the adjustment based on where the impact was in relation to your dot when you fired that round. If any of these three key issues had worked out differently, they could have stopped the tragedy that followed. First, had the exterior door been secured, the suspect may have never gained access to the building. At the very least, the suspect would have been delayed and responding officers would have had more time to find and stop the shooter before he entered the building. The UCISD PD officer might have seen the suspect had the officer not been driving fast or if he had approached on foot. Lastly, had the UPD officer engaged the suspect with his rifle, he may have been able to neutralize or at least distract the suspect, preventing him from entering the building. At all costs, as victims or facilities that may be attacked, you want to deter, defend, delay. You want to deter the event from happening at all, and if that doesn't happen, you need to move to defending. In this case, it's the school resource officer's responsibility, or in other cases, a security guard in general. And if we can't deter it, we can't defend it, then we need to delay the attacker's progress. And this happens as soon as the attacker is met with any amount of resistance. If we are able to delay the attacker in some way, it should minimize the levels of destruction and give the right people the opportunity to engage the suspect. Alert identified three key issues that occurred before the suspect entered rooms 111 and 112 for the last time. First, Uvalde ISD had protocols in place requiring doors to remain locked at all times, and the school was currently on an active lockdown prior to the suspect gaining entry to the school. Alert received information from investigators that the lock on room 111 had been reported as damaged multiple times. However, this has not been confirmed through work orders at this time. Regardless, the suspect is seen entering the room, exiting the room, and then re-entering the room again prior to officers entering the building at 1135. The only way to engage the lock is to insert a key from the hallway side door. At no point is the suspect observed entering the hallway and engaging the locking mechanism. Based upon this, we believe that the lock to room 111 was never engaged. At 11.36, audio recordings indicate the suspect was actively firing his weapon for four seconds. The first responding officers correctly moved toward the act of gunfire, which was acting as their driving force. A driving force is anything that pushes you in a certain direction where you're likely going to find the bad guy or find the active shooter. And typically in training, that driving force is gunfire. But it could be other things like people screaming, from just simply the patrol side of things, um, if you arrive on a call and you're at the front door on a disturbance and you hear somebody screaming for help, that's a driving force. That's telling you that you probably need to, at a minimum, breach the door 
assess and then go from there, but probably also need to make entry and find the person who is screaming for help. The seven officers converged on rooms 111 and 112 at 1137. As the officers approached the doors, the suspect began firing. This gunfire caused both teams of officers to retreat from the doors. We note that the officers did not make contact with the doors. They never touched any part of the doors. The team approaching from the north fell back to the T-intersection of the west and south hallways. This position is approximately 67 feet from the doors room 111 and 112. So the entire purpose of an active shooter is to stop the killing, stop the dying. This also means that you may have to walk past or move past injured people to get to the threat if he's still actively killing people. Now, with this piece here, you still have to use your best judgment. If you have five, ten guys with you and somebody's bleeding out, well, I mean, how many people do you need to go after one guy? I would say at a minimum four. That's how many people should be entering a room. So, you know, it doesn't mean that you have a busload of officers walking past every injured person to go to one problem. But the whole entire purpose is you can't start saving people until you stop the person who's actively killing other people. Inherent in both stop the killing and stop the dying is the priority of life scale. At the top of this scale, the first priority is to preserve the lives of victims and potential victims. Second is the safety of officers and last is the suspect. This ordering means that we expect officers to assume risk to save innocent lives. Responding to an active shooter is a dangerous task. There is a chance that the officers will be shot injured, or even killed while responding. This is something that every officer should be acutely aware of when they become a law enforcement officer. You would think that when people become police officers, they understand the risk involved in that. And you would think that they also understand in certain situations when innocent people are being killed, you will have to assume more risk than you usually would or than you would like to. But as we've seen, like the video that I did recently on the YouTube channel where the officer was on the porch and the victim was screaming for help and he jumped off the porch and kind of left her there. It's not a thing where you don't know how you would react in this situation because the majority of the time, like I'll talk about here, there's something that you can do because doing nothing is not reacting at all. And you don't need some high level of training to do something more than nothing. You don't need high levels of training to stand there and try to engage somebody, right? Because at a minimum, you've stood somewhere and shot your gun in training. It is not surprising that officers who had never been shot at before would be overwhelmed by the directed gunfire. This is especially the case if they had not been consistently training to deal with this type of threat. However, even after retreating, the officers were still presented with a clear driving force. The suspect was actively firing his weapon when the officers entered the building, and a reasonable officer would assume that there were injured people in those classrooms. The officers knew that the suspect was still alive and preventing them from accessing the wounded in the classrooms. The injured people are a driving force. Once the officers retreated, they should have quickly made a plan to stop the attacker and gain access to the wounded. Alert goes over several things that they could have done uh, from a planning perspective to initiate some type of action, but I'm just going to go over the most basic one. Perhaps the simplest plan would have been to push the team back down the hallway and attempt to control the classroom from the windows in the doors. Any officer wearing rifle-rated body armor would have assumed the lead as they had an additional level of protection. A team of four officers could have utilized the windows in the doors and controlled a large portion of the classroom from the hallway. 
two officers would have taken angular positions on each window. So I think what they're talking about right here is a cross coverage. This would have allowed them to cover a large portion of each classroom and the officers would have been likely to see and engage the attacker. Again, this would have been dangerous, but the priority of life scale dictates that officers assume risk to save innocent lives. It is also worth noting that the officers had rifles, body armor, which may or may not have been rated to stop rifle rounds, training, and backup. The victims in the classrooms had none of these things. If the classroom doors were locked, some of the officers on the door windows would have been able to provide cover while the other officers breached the doors. I don't really agree with that statement, being able to cover the officers while they're breaching, because breaching is a dangerous job, and in order to do it, you have to stand usually directly in front of the door, and that means that while you're standing there, nobody can actually cover you. But we also do know, again, that the door was never locked. While it would have taken a few minutes to coordinate and execute any of these actions once the officers retreated from the rooms, taking two, three, five, or even ten minutes to do so would have been preferable to the more than an hour it took to assault the room. The reason that I went over that first plan is because I'm looking at it from the initial responding officer's perspective. You know, looking at it from my perspective, putting myself in his shoes or the other officers that arrive on these scenes first. And you should have felt like you were in such a rush to do something that you probably wouldn't have made it to the two, three, five, and 10 minutes to develop one of these other plans that they talked about here. We commend the officers for quickly entering the building and moving toward the sound of gunfire. However, when the officers were fired at, momentum was lost. The officers fell back and took more than an hour to regain momentum and gain access to critically injured people. The responding officers began treating the situation as a hostage barricade rather than an active shooter event. The timeline shows that the shooter was killed at 12.50. There were escalating circumstances that unraveled over the 1 hour, 11 minutes, and 26 seconds between officers taking static positions and the moment the suspect was killed. The officers' capabilities increased due to arriving equipment and personnel, as well as moments where exigency of the situation increased due to either the suspect's actions, firing his weapon, or additional information being communicated to the officers inside of the building. Gunfire. At 11.40, the suspect fired one shot. At 11.44, the suspect fired another shot. And finally, at 12.21, the suspect fired four more shots. During each of these instances, the situation had gone active, and the immediate action plan should have been triggered because it was reasonable to believe that people were being killed. Tactical Operators While officers flowed through the scene, the first known tactical operator, Bortak, arrived at 12.15. Bortak operators receive extensive training and equipment to responding to barricaded suspects. Additionally, it is common for tactical operations to be turned over to tactical operators upon their arrival. However, it appears control of the tactical operation was not given to the tactical operators on scene. But based on this timeline, Bortak heard the shots at 1221 and finally assaulted the room at 1250, which is about 29 minutes after the shots were fired. The assault team entered the room at 1250, 1 hour, 11 minutes, and 26 seconds after the first responding officers took static positions. The assault team had keys that could unlock the door. It did not appear that any officer tested the doors to see if they were locked. As we described earlier, we do not believe that door 111 was locked. There were multiple points in time where the driving force increased through additional gunfire. However, officers did not act on the increase in driving force. Additionally, officers on scene continually received additional equipment and tactical components that increased their capability to address the suspect. Ultimately, it is unclear why the officers decided to assault the room at 1250. There was no apparent change in driving force or response capability at this point.
While we do not have definitive information at this point, it is possible that some of the people who died during this event could have been saved if they had received more rapid medical care. There's just no rationalizing this in terms of how you are supposed to respond to an active shooter. And I think that the right thing to do is to look at it from each officer's perspective and not in terms of like each individual officer, but set of officers that arrived because it's almost as if each new set of officers arriving was doing things based off information that they perceived that was obviously not accurate, nor did they seek out the accurate information. Initially, the first arriving officers had everything they needed to push the suspect and like they illustrated here and they talked about do what they could do absent of more people absent of more equipment to draw the suspect's attention at a minimum to them because if i'm engaging the bad guy then he is not shooting innocent people and what does that look like it looks like doing a threshold evaluation it looks like working that angle on that door and once you're able to gain a foothold and cause the suspect now okay he's receiving gunfire so now he's retreating and now we can move up to the door or i see he's in this room right here let maybe i need to go into the room next door because maybe that room connects which it did it just doesn't make sense to continuously try to walk through a hail of gunfire you're not going to be able to do it your body won't allow you to do it it doesn't make sense and so i'm not asking people to do that and in this situation the bad guy was aiming at the door and waiting one of the tactical mistakes that the officers made when they were in the hallway if you listen to the body camera as they're moving closer towards the door they're being very loud and i think even one of the guys says yells out that he's in here or something like that and you know shortly after that he gets shot at and it just doesn't make sense you're giving yourself away it's loud the suspect's been shooting himself he's been shooting inside of a room he probably already has a hard time you know, hearing through brick walls and doors and there's no need to yell. Like that could have been what you needed to gain the tactical advantage over the guy, which was you being where you are and him not knowing that you're there. One thing that was said in here that I don't really understand is that it's common for tactical operations to be turned over to tactical operators upon their arrival on scene. However, it appears that control of the tactical operation was not given to the tactical operators on scene. If you're a tactical operator, if you're arriving on a scene, right, you're there for a reason. And it's assumed that if you're the guy and you have all the training, that it's your responsibility, whether you're the newest guy or you've been on the team for a long time. When you arrive on scene, you need to figure out exactly what's going on and exactly what you have because that information is going to drive your decision making that information wasn't asked, but it, it did become known. There was times where the BORTAC was told by the officers that there's children in there hurt, shot. One of the, the medical operators even says they got a call from 911. She's in room, I think he said 12, it was 112, and that she's hurt. And BORTAC was in the building at 1215, heard four gunshots go off at 1221, pushed up within, I think it was 36 feet of the door, and didn't make entry until 29 minutes after that. Everybody failed at the fundamental principles of an active shooter, which is identify the driving force, stop the killing, and stop the dying. I don't know if there was an assumption that the door was locked because other officers were standing around, but at no time did anybody ever say the door was locked. And so they all began looking for keys, and now they had a key, and then basically went up and eventually just opened the door. 
any way that you look at this, it does come down to an individual person's willingness to put themselves in an uncomfortable position. And of course, what's come out of this is mandatory active shooter training. And that's fine. That's great. But at the end of the day, you're not going to solve this problem by building tactical skills. If you don't have the right person in the right place to do the thing and isn't willing to do the thing, then there isn't an amount of competency in any skill that's going to encourage them to do what they should be doing. If you enjoy this content, interact in any way that you can, that will help me build this community. You can reach out to me on Instagram at Surviving the Street, or you can go to kineticconceptsgroup.com, and all of the social links are at the top. If you're looking for training in Texas, send me an email at instructors at kineticconceptsgroup.com, or fill out one of the forms on the site. One eighteen, my family, I can't copy. I want family, I love them. We got crews coming.